Welcome to Bethany. I'm a pastor here. My name is Matt. Um, thank you all for being here. Um, if you got brought here and you don't really know what's going on, I'll attempt to explain that to you tonight. Um, but this is a somber service. This isn't a. Uh, this isn't what we're going to do on Sunday, which is going to be great. It's going to be beautiful. But we feel here at Bethany to have a right understanding of what we do on Sunday, we have to have a right understanding of what happens on Good Friday. Um, the format's going to be a little different than normal. I'm going to go through a lot of scripture today. But after the service, um, we've made the outline of the message available. All the scriptures, all the references, with cross-references and multiple verses to go along with it for personal study is available, and those will be at the back door When you leave, Um, let me pray and then we'll start. Father God, uh, the the, the mere fact that we're standing here today um, is just amazing. We just thank you for it, God. God, uh, the the mere fact that um, I'm up here talking about what you did for us, I don't totally understand it, God, but I thank you for it. God, I pray that uh, you will forgive me of my sins, that you will cleanse me, and and that your spirit will speak through me this this evening. God, uh, I pray for hearts in here this morning, I mean this evening. Um, God, this isn't easy. It's not pretty. It's not necessarily fun. But in some strange way, God, you've made it so beautiful. And I just pray that that will just penetrate into people's hearts this evening. We love you, and we thank you for what you did, and give us a greater understanding of it tonight. Amen. I pray. Amen. Here we go. Before I started, I really dug in Scripture for this, and I'll have you know that in preparing this message, um, it's been two weeks of preparation, and I'm so glad that Good Friday is here. Um. Studying this inside and out has been one of the best things I've ever done. I mean, I've done it before, but not at this level. Um, uh, our other pastor, Tom, he, he was a con- concern for me at one point um, because he was so concerned about my, like, it just seemed like I was depressed, and I wasn't. I was just really kind of beaten up over this Good Friday and what this means. Um, it's been the roughest health week that I've had in probably a couple of years. I was in the ER one evening. Um, don't know. This morning I woke up and I couldn't talk. So um, I'm sick currently. So if the voice goes away, I apologize. Um, but we're here. And uh, I didn't know where to start. And so when you don't know where to start when you're, when you're preaching, you start with the Word of God. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says this. And I... When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If you want to know what the goal of this message tonight is to preach nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's been an interesting week for me because I've realized something that um, the story is enough. Jesus on the cross is enough. 
There's really not much more that I can add or would add or should add. There's no funny story. There's no great illustration that I have. There's no great book other than the Bible that I'm, that, that I'm really referring to here. The story is enough. I'm not trying to convince you of anything that I want you to do tonight. I'm just going to tell you the story of what he did. So, here we go. What does this day mean? What does this day mean? 1 John 4.10 says this, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's a big word in there. The sacrifice. The diversion of the wrath of God for us. That's what that means. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That in him who knew no sin became everything that you and I are that falls short. One of my favorite quotes is um, from uh, a theologian. You may have heard of him. His name's Martin Luther. Um, kind of a big deal. Um, somebody asked him once, What is Good Friday? And his answer was, it's God getting his kids back. That's what Good Friday is. So, just a warning on this, if you didn't know this, I'm, I'm going to tell you what happened to Jesus in detail this evening. Okay? So, I'm not being graphic for the sake of being graphic. I'm being graphic because that's what happened. On this day, we celebrate what roughly happened about 2,000 years ago to a 33-year-old man named Jesus. Um, He was betrayed by one of his friends for some money. The Roman soldiers came and took him and tried him. They found no guilt in him, but they found him guilty anyways. He was blinded. He was blinded, stripped, and beaten. John 19.1 says that he was scourged. What we know that means is this, and the Romans were very famous for this. The Romans were notorious for their torture and their ways of killing people. What they would have used on Jesus was referred to as a cat of nine tails. And what they did to him was they would strip him down naked. And they would tie his arms above his head onto a post so that his buttocks, his thighs, and his back were completely exposed. And this whip that they would use had several strands of leather in it, but embedded in the strands of leather farther down were metal balls that were basically used so that when they hit your skin, it was very similar to tenderizing meat, if you were to tenderize a steak. So it would pound into the flesh just as we would tenderize a steak. That's what was happening to Jesus' flesh. At the end of this whip would be a metal hook or um, a fishbone in the shape of a hook 
So what would happen is that they would take the whip and they would whip it into his back. It would tenderize. It would swell. The hooks would insert into the skin. The highly trained executioner would make sure that it had a good grip into the skin and then he would rip it out. This would go on for for Romans. Actually, they had a limit on how many times they were even allowed to be whipped. For the Jews, there was no limit. doesn't tell us how many times he was. But we know that in the book of Isaiah, it says that he was marred beyond human recognition. At times, it would go so deep that it would actually hook a rib and pull it out. And this would just go on. For hours. For hours. Jesus took it. He laid there. He was marred beyond any sort of human recognition. He was just a flat out bloody mess. After that, to mock him, they wrapped him. And a cloth and put a crown of thorns on his head. The crowns of thorns were several inches long and they dug it into his forehead so that he would bleed profusely down his face. They put the wrapping around him and made fun of him and called him the king that he said he was. And then they ripped off the cloak that they had put around him, re-exposing all the, all the wounds that they had just covered up and the blood had dried on too. As if beating him wasn't enough. After that, they, handled him, they handed him a crossbar to a cross that weighed roughly 100 pounds, and it wouldn't have been new. Wood was scarce. It would have been recycled. And they would have made him carry it. The weight of a recycled, beat-up wooden cross being pressed onto the back of where his wounds were already so deep, the pain had to be excruciating. We know that it was because he couldn't carry it on his own. The Bible tells us that a man was appointed to him named Simon of Cyrene who helped him carry it because he just couldn't do it on his own. And you have to understand who Jesus was. He was a young man. He was a carpenter. He was a builder. He was strong. And it was too much for him. He wasn't much older than me. He wasn't strong enough to carry it. So Simon of Cyrene helped him. Once he got... To the place where he was being crucified, they pulled out his beard, piece by piece. In that culture, it is a sign of disrespect. The ultimate sign of just hatred. And they just pulled it out, piece by piece. Then they laid his crossbar onto the ground, attached it to the upright piece, that was already there. And they laid him down. They took three seven-inch nails, which Jesus knew all too well. He was a carpenter. He had used these nails in his own work. And they took them and they put them into the most 
sensitive nervous system spots in the human body, the hands or the wrist area and the feet. And they drove them through his hands and feet and into the cross. After that, they propped him up and there was a pre-dug hole and they would drop the cross into the hole and his body would have shaken violently. And the weight of his own body being held would have been excruciating when they dropped it in as if it wasn't enough already. A mocking sign was hung on the top of his cross that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And it wasn't a compliment. One of the interesting things here is Jesus never yelled at anybody. He never cursed at anybody. We know that the pain would be so excruciating that some of the men that were crucified would actually lash out in just pure anger towards their executioners. And it was just horrific things would happen. They would spit. They, most of the time they would be naked and they would try to urinate on the crowd. It was a horrible, horrible scene. Jesus did none of those things. We know that the pain would get so bad at sometimes. The men wouldn't even be able to control themselves. And at the foot of the cross, there would be a pile of feces, blood, sweat, and tears. That's the kind of pain that we're talking about. In Isaiah, it says, in this process, he was silent like a lamb being led off to be sheared. What I want to look at, that's your introduction for this evening. There's six very profound things Jesus says from the cross. And we're going to look at them each. One by one. The first one can be found in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. This is the first thing Jesus says from the cross. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I just told you that the men that were up there would cuss, scream, yell, do whatever they could to the crowd. What does Jesus say? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do we understand the weight of that forgiveness? The weight of that grace, because he knows that some of those men and women standing there mocking him, yelling at him, will come to know him on that very day. And will become some of his first followers. The first statement that we have is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The second is found in Luke chapter 23, just a few verses later. I'm going to read verses 39 through 43. There's two other men that were being hanged with him. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed 
justly deserve this, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to them, the second statement from the cross is, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Isn't this just phenomenal that this man up on the cross who deserved to be there because he said so himself knows that a man showing that kind of grace and handling himself the way that he was, was divine and nothing short of Jesus Christ, God incarnate himself. And he knew that. One of the other reasons I love this statement This man gets saved and he has never accomplished anything for the kingdom in his life other than accepting Jesus. It proves the Christian doctrine of that you are saved by grace alone, not by works. This man could have done nothing. He was literally nailed to a cross and up to that point, he deserved to be there. And he says, God, forgive me. Can I come with you? And Jesus says, yes. Some of you in here today may be trying to work really hard at the salvation thing. This should be your comfort. That the work you're doing and that you are failing at repeatedly isn't required. It's not what it's about. Many other religions will tell you so. Not Christianity. It is surely by the grace of God that you are saved. Our third statement is found in John chapter 19, verse 25. And this one, well, we'll just go through it. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopasus, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. This gets overlooked a lot. Mary being there, and, and, and I'm not a father yet, but hopefully someday I will be. But just as I'm sure any mother or father ever did, counting how many fingers and toes their kids have, there is Mary looking at her son and seeing nails driven through those exact same fingers and toes. And what does Jesus say? He says, here's John. He's a good pastor. He'll take care of you. He'll take care of you. The first three things Jesus says from the cross have nothing to do with himself. 
What's he do? He forgives. He saves. And he takes care of his mom. And people wonder why I love this God. The fourth statement is found in John chapter 19, verse 28. And it says this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. The fourth thing he says is, The fourth thing he says is, I thirst. Why is this important? It's greatly important. Some of you may think that Jesus being up there on the cross, it wasn't as bad because he was some, because he was God and that he was some sort of Superman hanging up there. But no, he felt it just as much as you and I would have felt it. He was thirsty. Him being up there was just as painful as if you and I were up there, and it had to have been. He was thirsty. The fifth one can be found in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. And it says this, And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This might be one of the most misunderstood scriptures in the Bible. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, please, every point that he says from the cross is of great importance. But please hear this one, because I think if we did, we would live very differently. For one, Jesus was repeating what the psalmist said in Psalm 22. Jesus preached the Bible till the day he died. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6 says, Surely he has become our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace And with his stripes, we are healed. Here's what happened. In that moment, Jesus took it all. He became what Martin Luther calls the great exchange. He says that he became the most ugly, reviled, evil thing that has ever walked the planet. If you have ever raped, molested, murdered, hurt, lied, done any sort of sin, he became that. He became the people that we say put them to death because they are not good enough to live. He was that person. He became the thing that you have done that you think nobody can forgive you for. I don't think we understand this fully. He became the most repulsive thing the world had ever seen. At the, 
at this time on the cross. Listen to this. God, the father and God, the Holy Spirit turned their back on him. Why have you forsaken me? He says. Because he was your sin. At this moment, he atoned for all of our sin. The wrath of God was satisfied. Some of us like to say that the the wrath of God doesn't exist, and it does. It is mentioned over 600 times in the Bible. People say, well, that's not loving. The cross is loving. Because God is just and he is perfect and it needed to be justified. Galatians 3.13 says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. He was cursed for us. I, I, I mean, I, like I said when I started, I don't know how to let this sink in anymore. But literally, Jesus Christ was crushed for you. We put him up there. People will tell you, no, we didn't. I wasn't there. Then we come to our next statement. John 19.30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said what? He said, it is finished. The Bible says he says it in a loud way. It is finished. What is finished? Your sin has been Forgiven, past, present, and future. You've got to understand here, folks, that God does not exist on the timeline like you and are. It does not mean that you had to be there or that you had to have already sinned. He was atoning all of the sin, past, present, and future. He will not do it again. He will not be beaten and made a mockery of ever again. Never again will he do it. When we see him again, here's how he is described. And it is beautiful and it is scary and it is gracious and it is amazing. It says that he will come in a white robe and at the bottom it will be dripped in blood. And that he will have a tattoo on his thigh that says, Lord of Lord, King of Kings. And he'll be riding a white horse and there'll be an army coming behind him and he will come to judge. It will not be as a homeless peasant. He will not do it again. He died once for your sins, for all sins, once and for all. That is why he can say it is finished. It is done. There's a few things that we can do with this. And we're going to talk more about those, but there's one that we can't do. We tend, at least I do, so I want to have pity on Jesus in this time. I want to feel sorry for him. 
John 10, 17 through 18 says basically this. He says, I laid down my life willingly. Nobody takes my life from me. I am God. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. I was talking to a group of middle school boys the other day. And a small group in the... They said... It's so crazy to me. See, he could have killed them all. (laughs) Yeah, said as only middle school boys can. In that moment, he could have just called the angels and handled it all. But he didn't, and he did it willingly. We must know that. He did it willingly. Hebrews 12.2 says this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand in the throne of God. You know what's really crazy about doing this whole pastor thing? One of the things that really just strikes me as interesting. I have to try to convince you guys to worship him. Trying to convince you to do that. This week, God has laid it on my heart. I'm not going to do that anymore. The story is enough. His suffering is enough. And if it does not penetrate your heart, I'm talking to the Christians here for a moment, the people who claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior. If that does not penetrate your life, to live a radical life for Jesus that gives everything, time, treasure, talent, everything you got every day, then there's nothing I'm ever going to say that will. I did it. I lived a dualistic lifestyle. I did the church thing for a while. I'm going to challenge you to invite the Holy Spirit in and not live that way anymore because that is not what God has called you to. You cannot find it in the Bible. It does not exist anywhere. Nowhere do you see Peter saying, oh, well, guess what? I only do it on Sundays. We've we've said it multiple times. Church is the worst hobby to have. Buy a boat. Don't fake it. One of the worst things I see in youth ministry. I have kids now. I need to bring them to church. If you don't live the life and you expect them to become followers of Jesus because they come here, you are hurting the gospel. And you need to repent of that. The interesting thing about this is that we're all sinners. The Bible says we are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. And if you don't believe in Jesus, and this seems a little heavy, it is. We take this very seriously here. Some will say, the cross is too gory. I've had people this week tell me that I'm too obsessed with blood. 
take it really seriously because guess what? He did it for you too. We exist for two reasons here in this church. One, to bring glory to his name. And two, to go out to the world that does not know Jesus and know what he has done for them and tell them. If you're here today and you are far from God, this might be too intense. I don't think it is. This story has been told thousands of times. There's nothing I've said today that hasn't been said before. Matter of fact, I stole it from a bunch of other guys. We know that he did this. I trust that the Holy Spirit's doing a work on your heart right now. That he is speaking to you in a way that you never knew was possible. And that somehow something so horrible and ugly and bloody and gruesome is becoming very beautiful to you right now. I want to share something with you. It's found in Romans 8. It says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who believe in Christ Jesus. That was a big one for me. I didn't think I could ever be forgiven for what I had done. And then I found that. He could forgive the guy next to him, hanging on the cross, there ain't nothing you've done. What we're going to do here is we're going to worship. We're going to do it in a few different ways, too. Worship team's going to come up, and, and they're going to sing a song. We're going to worship with our mouths. We're going to do that. But I want you to know something, that there is no timetable tonight. Up here, we have prepared the Lord's Supper. And uh, we put it underneath the cross intentionally. We ask you, if you are a believer in Jesus, one of the ways you can worship tonight is you can enjoy in the Lord's Supper. What does that mean? Night before he was betrayed, the whole story I just told you, he had all of his boys with him, the disciples. And he broke bread, and he told them, this is my body which will be broken for you. I think you have a deeper understanding of what he meant right now. And he said, he picked up the cup and said, this is my blood, which is the new and everlasting covenant, which will be shed for you for the remission of all sins. Drink it in remembrance of me. One of the ways you can worship tonight is you can repent. You can say, I'm sorry, God, for whatever it is. We encourage you to come up, rip off a piece of bread. There's no cups. There's a bowl right there with grape juice. And we just ask you to just, you can dip it and take it that way. We encourage you to use this altar. Come up here to kneel. 
pray. We have people here to pray with you if you need it. We have people here that are here to answer questions because this might be really confusing for some of you right now. We encourage you to come and you can kneel at the cross. We encourage you to stay and worship with each other and group and pray for each other. Another way that we worship here at Bethany is through our tithes and offerings. If you want to give financially, there's a box in the back you can give at and then there's a giving kiosk in the hallway. It's another way that we worship as Christians. For a change, let's please not rush out of here. we got enough going on. One of the things I've learned is that when I stop, it doesn't mean that the world stops. God's still in control. Take the time. If you want to stay here and pray till Easter Sunday morning, we'll hang out with you. I mean it. There's no timetable. We encourage you to come back on Sunday morning. Two services, 9 o'clock and 10.30. And... If you, were, if you come, I, I think you're going to have a very deep understanding of what the resurrection of Jesus is all about and why it just is mind-blowing. So we hope to see you on Easter Sunday. Take the time. Let's worship with our mouths first. Please don't hurry out of here.